And so this morning, we're going to, to expound upon what the, the author uh, of the letter of Hebrews is speaking of here in Hebrews chapter 10. And it is a question that all followers of Christ should wrestle with. It's a question that all followers of Christ ultimately, to some degree or another, do wrestle with. And we need to know exactly what it is uh, that we should look at and view and apply to our lives as followers of Christ under the new covenant uh, when we look at the old covenant and what is written in the Old Testament. And so as we continue in our series of looking at the life and the earthly ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we have found ourselves in the section of the Sermon on the Mount, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at four verses today, verses 17 through 20, and a message entitled, The Old Made New. Now, what does that necessarily imply for, for, for us that are under the new covenant when we look at the Old Testament? How does Jesus deal with the Old Testament? How does Jesus deal with the Old Covenant? And therefore, as followers of Jesus Christ, how should we deal with the law, with the Old Testament, and with the Old Covenant? Well, really, there's uh, typically within Christendom, there's always going to be two ends of the spectrum. Uh, there's typically going to be individuals that will swing the pendulum away from what it is that God has called the church to be, the church to believe, and the church to do to one extreme or, or to the other. Uh, so you have individuals uh, within the life of the church when it comes to the Holy Spirit. You have some individuals that are way over here, and they make a complete mockery of the Holy Spirit. They make a complete mockery of the work of the Holy Spirit, and there's all kinds of craziness that happens on this end of the spectrum. Then you have individuals that come way over here to this end of the spectrum, and we treat the Holy Spirit like the weird uncle that comes around for Thanksgiving, and we don't even want to talk about the Holy Spirit. We're called Baptist. <laughs> and really, the reality is that what God says is, no, 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 no. It's not something that we should fear, but it's also not something that we should make a mockery of, that we should be uh, grounded within the Scriptures. Well, when it comes to how Christians deal with the Old Testament and how Christians deal with the law and the Old Covenant, typically what you have is you have the pendulum swing way to one end of the spectrum or way to another end of the spectrum. And you have individuals that become like what Paul was refudiating, the Judaizers, who are saying, no, 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 listen, Christ is just the entry point into Judaism. Christ is just what gets you uh, right with God, uh, and now that you are right with God, now you have to live and adhere to the Mosaic Law and to all of these other things. He's just an entry point. But that's not what Scripture teaches. So sometimes individuals overcorrect and they swing way over here, and they teach what Bonhoeffer would write in a book called The Cost of Discipleship. They teach cheap grace. And that basically says, listen, you, you can have Christ for nothing. Uh, you can have salvation for nothing. And the reality is Scripture does not teach any ends of those. Christ didn't come to set you free so that you could be the God over your own life. That's what imprisoned you in the first place. He came to set you free so that you would have the ability and the power to follow after him being indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So therefore, what is the ground that we should stand upon when it comes as believers to the Old Testament, when it comes as believers to the Old Covenant, when it comes uh, as believers to the, the law. Uh, I think it is important for us because it is a question that, that really the church has wrestled with for a long time. Uh, you have an individual like Marcion who uh, was very early on, he was born 50 years after Jesus uh, was crucified and resurrected. And he said that the God of the Old Testament was completely different from the God of the New Testament. And so he rewrote the New Testament by removing all of uh, the quotes and references to the, to the Old Testament. And then you have individuals even in uh, today, popular voices within the evangelical world today that says that we need to uh, unchain ourselves or unhinge ourselves from the Old Testament. We need to divorce ourselves from the Old Testament. And that is a very dangerous teaching because that is not the teaching of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is imperative that we not only do what Jesus did, but we believe what Jesus believed. 
And what Jesus believed about the Old Testament is that it was fine, that it was God's revealed word, that, that it was uh, to be uh, 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 admonished, it was to be adhered to, it was to be applied, but through the lens that we will see of his redeeming work. Because we read in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture, uh, all 66 books of our Bible is God-inspired. It is breathed out by God, and it is profitable. Uh, Nehemiah is just as profitable as John. Ezekiel is just as profitable as Galatians. Leviticus is just as profitable uh, as 1 Corinthians. Uh, All Scripture is breathed out from God. God wants us to know all of those truths because they are able to provide reproof and correction for training and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Romans 15.4 would say this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. He's talking to the church. This is the New Testament church. This is after Christ has been crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended. And he's saying all that has been written is for our instruction as New Testament believers. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Listen, there's hope to be found in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, go all the way back to Genesis where there was a promise of one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And then we see the expansion of that reality, but also the shrinking of knowing that that deliverer would come uh, through Abraham, would come through Israel, would come through Judah, would come through the line of David. We see the the shrinking, but also the expansion of this reality. And so what we, what we see is in this truth that all of that points forward to the fact that God honors his word. And what he says will come to pass will come to pass. And that's good news for us that live on this side of Pentecost, that live on this side of the first Easter Sunday, because all of the promises that have been extended to the church are yes and amen in Christ. And because we know God honors everything that he says in his word, then all of the hope that we have for what is after this life and what God has promised in his kingdom, we can take to the bank and we can build our lives upon that. And so there is so much hope and there's so much grace to be found in the Old Testament. The fact that we have the Old Testament shows us that God is a God of grace, that he would even reveal himself to us is a reality of God's grace. Oftentimes, individuals say the God of the Old Testament is completely different than the God of the New Testament, uh, that the God of the Old Testament, he's just all about wrath and no grace, and the God of the New Testament is all about grace and there's no wrath, and evidently, individuals haven't read all of Scripture because because that refutes it. In fact, one of the greatest parts that we can look at uh, for God's grace in the Old Testament is the book of Jonah. I I love this reality Uh, because if God wasn't a gracious God, listen, there, there was only one way, there was only one other way out of that fish. I'll let you think about that. If that's not God of grace, I don't know what is. There's hope to be found in the Old Testament. And when we read God's word, that we see this play out. J.C. Ryle says this, the Old Testament is the gospel in bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. The Old Testament is the gospel in blade. The New Testament is the gospel in full ear. In other words, you can't have the flower in full bloom without the bud. And you can't have the full ear or the full stock without the blade. You can't divorce the New Testament from the Old Testament. The New Testament would not be understood in the light that we would understood it. Listen, the good news wouldn't be as good if we didn't understand what transpired in the Old Testament as God was pointing forward to the Redeemer and the Savior that was to come. So it's important for us to understand this, and that's exactly what Jesus is going to hear as he begins the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, which will conclude in Matthew 7, 12, uh, where he's done the introduction, the Beatitudes, the salt and the light statements, and he lays out for us uh, really this kingdom ethic uh, that we are to uh, follow and we are to adhere to and to apply to our lives. And what he has done is much like the book of Ephesians. So Ephesians is divided into two halves. 
The first three chapters tell us who we are in Christ, and then there's a a turning point that comes in chapter 4 that says that we are now to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then he lays out the remainder of the book of what it looks like to follow after Christ. So this is who you are. This is how you should live. Christ, Paul gets this from Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, this is who you are. You're salt and light. These are the blessed statements. Now, this is how somebody uh, that is salt and light, this is how a follower of Christ should look and should act. And so he begins that by laying out uh, a rebuttal to a question that he knows that's going to come because he's going to get into these statements of saying, you have heard that it's said, but I say to you. And he knows that they already think he doesn't adhere to the law because he heals on the Sabbath, and he's preparing for a rebuttal before they even ask the question. And he's trying to get them to understand that he has not come to abolish the law but fulfill it. And we'll see that in our text. In fact, let's read that together and then unpack it. Matthew 5, 17 through 20, God's word says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's just a a way of of saying all of the Old Testament, all of, of Scripture. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away... Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, This is a doctrine that really a lot of the New Testament uh, takes time to to unravel. In fact, Paul would write the book of Galatians to the church at Galatia really to deal and unpack this this whole idea that we find in four verses. But these are important verses because they give us a good picture and understanding of exactly how it is we should interpret the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law uh, through the lens of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And what follows is what is known as the six antithesis. So you, you will see in, in, in following this, uh, there's a section of the Sermon on the Mount uh, that, that goes through verse 48, and he's going to deal with these statements. You have heard that it is said, but I say to you, and he's going to deal with anger. He's going to deal with lust. He's going to deal with divorce. He's going to deal with the taking of oaths. He's going to deal with retaliation and vengeance and with how it is that we should treat our enemies. And what he is not doing is he is not taking away the Old Testament and saying all of that is null and void. He says in the text we just read, he's not abolishing, but he's fulfilling. Uh, Because what he's saying, when he refers to God's revealed word, he, he would say, have you not read? Or it is written. But here he says, uh, you have heard it said. In other words, he is not refuting the law. He's refuting the pharisaical interpretation of the law. He's saying, you're, you're off course. Uh, you are taking the law and you are filtering it through in a manner that you are more concerned with the letter of the law and not the heart or the intention behind the law and the one who gave the law. And in our passage, these four verses are neatly divided into really two sections. And the first section is verses 17 through 18, and that deals with Christ and the law. And Christ and the law is a matter of fulfillment. So when we look at Christ and the law in verses 17 through 18, we see that it is a matter of fulfillment, that Jesus says, I have not come to abolish it, uh, but I have come to fulfill it. Now, what does it mean when he says that he has come to fulfill it? Well, that's that's a loaded phrase. That is a loaded word that has a lot of layers and a lot of meanings. Some individuals put the primary emphasis on this meaning that Jesus came to perfectly adhere to the law so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for us on the cross of Calvary. That's a part of it. That is theologically true, and that is a layer and an aspect of what Jesus is saying when he says that I have come to fulfill the law. That he is going to fulfill it perfectly, that he is going to adhere to it perfectly, that he is going to complete it perfectly. Therefore, he becomes the perfect sacrifice on the cross for our sins. But there's also another aspect of the interpretation as we just looked at that. What he's saying is you have misinterpreted what it is that God intended by giving the law. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to clarify all of that. 
I'm going to clarify where you have gotten off of track. I am going to now speak into these subjects in a way that now brings you back to the original intent that God had given for, for his law. I think both of those are theologically true, and I think both of those are in view here. But I think there is a primary emphasis that Jesus is making and Matthew is recording because this word is all throughout Matthew leading up to this and all throughout Matthew uh, after this. In fact, the first two chapters of Matthew, we read the idea of things being fulfilled over and over and over. This happened so as to fulfill, and he would quote an Old Testament prophecy. So when Jesus says that I am not abolishing the law, I have come to fulfill it, ultimately the way that Matthew is using it, and I believe that Jesus is speaking here, is really talking about how he is fulfilling both the law in the sense of I have come to do everything that was called for the Messiah to be and to do, and the prophecy of who the Messiah is and the work that he would accomplish. In other words... This idea of fulfill shows the true meaning, the true intent, the true eschatological consummation of what God did in the past, and it is now coming into fruition in Jesus. In other words, what he's saying, I've come to fulfill the law. In other words, the Old Testament is about me. It's all about me. And I have come to fulfill it. Everybody, everything that, that you have been looking forward to in the Messiah, in the Savior, that is me. Everything that will be accomplished by the Messiah and the Savior will be accomplished by me. I am fulfilling all of those prophecies, and I will continue to fulfill all of them because all the promises of God are yes and amen in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so if you're taking notes, the first subpoint there is that when we deal with Christ and the law and the fulfillment of that, we must understand the prophetic purpose of the law. The prophetic purpose of the law, that the law was pointing us to Jesus, that the law itself prophesied. Matthew eleven thirteen says this, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. They were all pointing forward to the Christ. They were all pointing forward to Jesus. They're all pointing forward to the Savior who John would say, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Everything that you've been reading, every prayer that you've been praying, all the hopes that you have for the Christ and the Messiah to come, it is him. And all of the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And we see this prophetic purpose of the law. Now, when he says he's not abolishing the law, that doesn't mean that nothing changes about the law. Doesn't mean that he's not changing the law. It means that he is not abolishing the law. Listen, with Jesus, everything changes. Everything changes with Jesus. We talked last week about a game changer. We talked about how the church, we ought to be game changers as those that are in Christ Jesus. Uh, when we uh, infiltrate into specific areas of society, uh, our marriages, our homes, our workplaces, uh, are the places that we uh, have our hobbies, all of those things should be different because we are there. As a salt and a light, we should change things. Well, listen, the, the, Jesus changes everything. You think about the sacrificial system and, and the priesthood. Uh, the priesthood and the sacrificial system, as we read in Hebrews 10 just a little bit ago, uh, it has changed. And Jesus changes it. In that the priesthood and the sacrifice ceased in function, not in meaning. In fact, what they provide for us is it provides a more fully confirmed meaning of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. The sacrifices themselves were pointing forward. They were a shadow of the substance of things to come. And they themselves were pointing forward to Jesus. Hebrews speaks of this over and over of how Jesus is greater than all of these other things because these other things were pointing to Jesus. Hebrews 10.1, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. In other words, the sacrifices showed the insufficiency of them in and of themselves and Christ the sufficiency of his grace in and of the redeeming atoning work on the cross. They are pointing forward to 
Jesus. Hebrews 9, 19, or Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way. That doesn't mean that God's people never were able to access God. They were able to access God, but it was through the blood of bulls and goats. It was through an intercessor that was the great high priest. Well, now we have Jesus as our great high priest, and we don't have the blood of bulls and goats. We have the unblemished, perfect blood of the lamb who has overcome. We just sang that. The reality and the truth of Jesus, the conqueror and the defeater of death and of sin. So we have this new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Colossians 2.17 speaks of the same thing. These are a shadow. He's talking about the festivals. He's talking about the Sabbath. He's talking about these religious things that they were doing. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So when he says that he is fulfilling... The Old Testament, when he's fulfilling the scriptures, what he's saying is the Old Testament is all about me. The Old Covenant was pointing forward to me. Secondly, when we look at our text in verses 17 through 18, we see the perfection of the law. I think there's a misconception that, that the law is bad. Listen, Jesus, uh, God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He's the one that gave us the law. Uh, the, the, the law isn't faulty. It serves the exact purpose that God wants it to serve, and it is perfect in every way. Jesus says, listen, not one iota, not one dot will pass away. In other words, he speaks of the perfection of the law. An iota is a very small mark in the Hebrew language. It's like our comma, and it plays a significant part. He said, listen, not even the smallest little mark is going to pass away because the law that God has given and has revealed to us it is perfect. And he says, not one dot. Now, it really, probably better translation is say stroke or horn. And it is, it is a, a, a mark that is used in the Hebrew language. It'd be much like us. It's a very small mark. But it'd be much like us, the difference between an F and a P. The little thing that will connect at the tip of the, the F and the P that radically transforms one letter to another. That is what a horn is. That is what the dot is, the difference between a P and a B. And what he's saying is that the Pharisees were going in, and they were changing the law in such a way, it was almost as if they were changing P's into B's or F's into R's. So you think about how much a word changes when you would say fun or run or bun or pun. Those words change, and what God's word is saying, is, what Jesus is saying is that God's word is perfect, and their misinterpretation is almost as if they are rewriting Scripture itself. And he says, not even one iota, not one dot will change because God's law is perfect. You see, the scribes were making the law's demands less demanding. That's why Jesus is going to address, and he's going to say, listen, what you say is that murder is wrong. But what I say is that anger and hatred in your heart is just as evil because the action is birthed out of what takes place in the heart. See, they were taking the law's demands and they were making it less demanding. And then they were taking the, the restrictions or the permissions and making them more permissive. They were taking the permissions in God's word and making it more permissive. So in God's word, not because he loves divorce, he hates divorce, but there are two instances where God says that for our purpose, the divorce, infidelity, and if it's a non-believer that you're married to, walks away from the marriage. But what they came to say is you could divorce your, your, your wife for any reason. If she burned your dinner, literally, this is in the, the, the code of, of the Hebrew. If, if she burned your dinner, get you a new one. She's out. She's gone. And they were making more permissive the permissions that were in there. And so Jesus comes along, and Jesus extends the commands, which they were restricting. He says, no, 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 no. It's a matter of the heart. You, you got lust in your heart. It's just like you're committing adultery. And he restricted the, the permissions that they were extending. And so he brings it in, and he narrows it down to the intention that it was supposed to be. And so we see the perfection of the law. 
Thirdly, we also see the permanence of the law. He says that these are in place until heaven and earth pass away or all is accomplished. Those two are synonymous. And so what he's talking about is that the, the, the law will not pass away until the heavens and the earth pass away. That Christ refers to these, what is being accomplished, being accomplished when the heaven and the earth pass away. And so the passing away of one and the new birth of the other will coincide. They will pass away together. So there's coming a day where this earth uh, will be burned up, it will be dissolved, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And he said that the, the passing away of the law or the Old Testament, the, the, the scriptures, uh, what is binding upon us from the Old Testament will not pass away until the heavens and the earth pass away. Second Peter 3.10 says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth, first earth had passed away. I know oftentimes we think of heaven as, you know, precious moments. We're all wearing cloth diapers with harps, sitting on clouds playing. That's not heaven. That's not heaven. We shouldn't get excited about that. But that's not what heaven is. That's a caricature of what God is going to do for us. And it is true to be absent from the bodies and be present with the Lord in a present heaven. But what God is going to do is he's going to, he is going to redeem all of creation. God's creation itself groans for a longing of the redemption. And heaven and earth, the true heaven and, the, and earth that we are going to spend eternity in is going to be here on this earth. Like paradise was before the fall. It's going to be marvelous. It's going to be the most amazing thing that we could ever dream or imagine. We're not going to be sitting on clouds playing, playing a harp. We're going to be with Jesus. We're going to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout all of creation. And it's going to be something that we will never want to leave, and it is something that, will thoroughly, uh, that we will thoroughly enjoy each moment of each and every day. Matthew 24, 35 says this, heaven and earth will pass away. So Jesus speaks of this reality, but my words will not pass away. My words will not pass away. So here he is establishing the reality that, listen, all of scripture needs to be filtered through me because my words will not pass away. And that brings us to the second half of our passage of scripture, verses 19 through 20. So we see how Christ deals with the law. He's fulfilling it. He says, it all points to me, that I am the fulfillment of it, that I am not divorcing uh, us from it. It has a role to play in the life of all of my followers, that he would confirm the revelation of God over and over and over from the Old Testament. But as individuals that are to do as Christ does and to believe as Christ believes, then therefore how as followers of Christ who are no longer under the law, how are we to deal with the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and with the law? The second half, verses 19 through 20, teach us. Christians and the law, as we deal with the law, is a matter of faithfulness. It's a matter of faithfulness. And it's not faithfulness. Uh, to, to the law itself, it's faithful to the one who has fulfilled the law. It's faithfulness to Christ, the one who now we look at and the law is now filtered through. That we don't reject the law because Christ didn't reject the law. We don't unhinge ourselves from the law because Christ didn't do that. But we are faithful to Christ and as a result, as he interprets the law, as he goes, so do we. And as he believes, so do we? So if we are not under the Mosaic law anymore, and I would put forward to you that we are not, that we are not underneath the Mosaic law. In fact, I remember one time I was, I was doing open air preaching. Uh, so I, I was out, I, I was just preaching, preaching the gospel, calling individuals uh, to repentance and place their faith and trust in Jesus and this lady, uh, she, came, she came to me through, through a course of a, a short conversation. It was only a couple of minutes. Uh, she told me she was a witch and that she's put a curse on me. And she was about ready to use her taser on me. Uh, sometimes that's just what it is, right? I would have just gone Pentecostal 
slain in the spirit for a second, and then keep preaching, okay? And I think what happens is people hear those stories and they say, well, I don't, I don't want to go and I don't want to proclaim the gospel because a witch may put a curse on me. Uh, uh, I, I, may, I may get a taser or worse or something along those lines. And they try to put us in this, they, they encapsulate us in fear not to proclaim the, the word of God. And I will put forward to you that uh, that woman may have never heard the gospel before. And she desperately needed the gospel. I don't know that she would ever walk through those doors of the church, and so the church better walk through the doors of other establishments and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ if we really believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he has done what he says that he has done. But I remember in that conversation, she said, you don't even believe what it is you're preaching because I was wearing a shirt like this, and she said, you're not even supposed to wear clothes of two different materials. It's true. In the Old Testament, it does speak of the fact that you're not supposed to wear clothing of two different materials. Does God hate me that I'm in this kind of polyester shirt right now? Did God just despise the 70s? <laughs> Is God upset yesterday morning? I was cooking wife, uh, cooking wife. I was cooking breakfast for my wife and for, for my family. And they just wanted something real quick. But I was like, man, listen, we've got to have some bacon. And just the beauty of that bacon on that Blackstone grill, sizzling. It's like it was singing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. <laughs> I said, oh, man, I love me some bacon. Am I, am I going against God by eating bacon? Am I, am I going against the Lord? Because there's a provision in the Old Testament that says that you shouldn't be eating bacon. Listen, I love shrimp. I love bacon-wrapped shrimp. <laughs> shrimp, scampi, pork chops. Am, am, am I going against God by eating these things? Well, we have to understand we are no longer underneath the, the Mosaic law. We're under what God's word says is the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 21 says this. To those outside the law became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Now, what is the law of Christ? Galatians 6, 2 tells us, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So if I'm not under the, the, the Old Testament law, I'm not under the Mosaic law, but I'm under the law of Christ, what does that mean for me as a follower of Jesus? Well, the first thing it means is that we are to examine the law through the lens of Christ. We look at the law, we look at the Old Testament, but we look at it as individuals that are on this side of the cross, as individuals that are on this side of the incarnation, as individuals that are on this side of Pentecost, as individuals on this side of the resurrection and the ascension. Acts 10, listen, is a beautiful passage of Scripture. In Acts 10, God's Word speaks of Peter, who is chilling with a man named Simon the Tanner in Joppa, and it says he's on the roof, and that brother gets hungry. And God gives him a vision of a sheep falling down from the sky, and it's got all these animals on it, and says, get up, kill and eat. Any hunters in there, that ought to be your life verse. Get up, kill, and eat. And he says, I can't do that. I've never eaten anything unclean. And God said, don't you dare call common what I now call clean. Now we get bacon wrapped shrimp. <laughs> now we get pork chops. If that hadn't happened, and we're eating bacon and, and shrimp that I would say in a very real sense, we, we, we probably shouldn't be. But God has said, listen, that doesn't apply to you anymore. The, now, he's teaching a greater lesson about bringing the Gentiles into the faith. But there's still that aspect of the ceremonial law of the Mosaic law is not binding upon a follower of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, the sacrificial system, is not binding upon a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, this law of Christ, we read about in Galatians 3, 23 through 26. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. So you were imprisoned under the law. The law being that you have to adhere to these things. And ultimately, there are 10 of them that are given as far as the moral aspect of the law. 
And I don't know about you, but I couldn't even do one of them. I, I, I can't even adhere to one. If, if, if God would have said, listen, I'm just going to give you one. Don't put any gods before me. None of us could adhere to that. We all fall short of the glory of God Almighty. And so we are imprisoned by that because we see that there's nothing that we can accomplish to earn God's favor and salvation by our own strength and our own merit. Because if you break one of them one time, you are now separated from God for all of eternity, imprisoned as a child of wrath. And there's nothing that you can do to undo that. So God had to send somebody outside of humanity. He came himself to take on the form of humanity and obedience to the point of death on the cross so that we could be set free by the Son and the redeeming work of Christ on the cross and be adopted into the forever family of God Almighty through faith in Jesus. We are imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. In other words, it was our tutor. It was showing us our need for Jesus. The Old Testament is showing us our need for Jesus, showing us a need for a Savior. Look at the Israelites. God would uh, extend grace and mercy to them and say, okay, this time everything is clean. The slate has been clean. It's a start over. It's a redo. It's a reset. Now, don't do this anymore. And no, they, those jokers would just turn right around and they would do it again. And we can blame them and look at them, but don't we do the same? Don't we tend to do the exact same thing? And so for us, we see that what the Old Testament is pointing forward to is our need for a Savior to do for us that which we could not do. It is a guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But, but now that faith has come and we are no longer under a, a guardian. Secondly, uh, we are to expound the law with our lives and our lips. In other words, we are to teach the, the, the law uh, this law of Christ, we're to teach it with our lives and our lips. But I think it's important for us to understand, okay, what is the law of Christ? If it was our guardian or the law was our guardian to point us to Christ and we are to uh, uh, look at everything through the lens of Christ and that we are therefore to, to, to live that out. And as we are instructed in verse 19, that therefore who relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, that's our, our, our lives, and teaches them, that's our lips, will be called great. So we are to do them and we are to teach them. But to do what and to teach what? What is the law of Christ? Well, Galatians 5.14 gives us that answer. For the whole law or the law of Christ is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is the law of Christ. Now, you would say, hold on just a second. Isn't that missing a part? Because when the rich young ruler came to, came to Jesus and asked what is the greatest commandment, Jesus, who now we look at the Old Testament through the lens of him, summarized everything by giving the commandment of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So is what is being said here is a law of Christ that we don't have to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength because it just says love our neighbor? No, 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 no. See, you can't have one without the other. You'll never be able to love your neighbor as yourself in the sense that God has called you to until you first love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see, because the flesh and the hearts that are set upon the flesh, it's self-serving. I want to advance my agenda. I want to advance my kingdom. I want what benefits me. I want other individuals to do what it is that, that I want. I want them to serve me. I don't want to serve them. But a heart that is fixated upon God Almighty, a new regenerate heart that has the Holy Spirit at work in it, sees individuals as image bearers of God Almighty, understands that we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves, and that flows out of the one who has first loved us and poured his love into our heart so that we can extend it to another individual. In other words, 1 John 4, 19-21 speaks of this. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So if you argue in reverse, those that love their brother as himself, that love their neighbor as himself, are actually portraying and showing the example of one who is loving God Almighty with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. John 13, 33 through 34 says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So what is the law of Christ? Love God and love people. That is the law that, that we are under. Now, does that excuse us from what is taught in the Old Testament? No, because I think if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to murder them. Some isomized. If you're loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then loving your neighbor as yourself as another image bearer of God Almighty, you're, you're not going to kill them. You're not going to covet their wife. You're not going to commit adultery against your spouse. All of these things are fleshed out in a reality that show that God is actually at work in our hearts. The way that we treat other individuals. The way that we love individuals. In fact, Christ said, this is how they'll know you belong to me. The way that you love one another. We are under that law. In fact, isn't that what all the Old Testament is showing us? That we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is what happens when you don't do that and you chase after false gods. That we should love our neighbor as ourselves, And when we treat each other uh, in ways to where a whole kingdom is divided and now you have the people of God divided against themselves, warring against each other, and they become weaker as a result to where the northern kingdom falls and then the southern kingdom falls. Isn't that a foreshadowing of the reality that we are no longer Greek or Jew, but the, the dividing wall has been broken down and we are now one in Christ. So don't let the devil come in and divide us into camps and into groups because we're stronger and better together and we're weaker when we're bickering with each other. And part of the problem is that we are not advancing the, 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 the gospel and the kingdom is because we can't even get out of the barracks because we're so busy fighting with each other. And we're devouring one another. And the devil just laughs. He says, no, no, love God and love people. And this is where the Pharisees and the scribes had it all mixed up. This is where they had it wrong. Because they failed to understand that what God was calling them to was not a matter of more and more obedience, but a matter of deeper and deeper obedience. See, they were worried about righteousness at the surface level where man sees as opposed to righteousness at the heart level where God sees. That's why they look like whitewashed tombs. That, that, that's why on the outside it looked real pristine, and we can do that in church now. We can, we can play the part, and we can come in, and we can play church, and our heart can be far away from God. And he says, you don't honor me one bit in that. You can come in, and you can play church all you want, and you can dress up, and you can smile, and you can be broken on the inside in this very place that I gave you to come and to find healing and to find individuals to come and give you accountability and to give you encouragement and to build you up and strengthen you, you can miss out on that because you're so busy worrying about what the outside looks like instead of what the inside looks like. And all the time, God sees it. He says, well, all you're doing is fooling other people. And Christ is speaking against that. I, love, I had lunch uh, a couple days ago with a man of God that I, I, I highly respect. He's been a part of this church for, for a long, long time. He, he loves the, the, the Lord. He loves his word. He's very knowledgeable about God's word. It's a man named Les Reed. And I was having, I was having lunch with, with Les, and he brought something uh, to the forefront that I haven't seen. And sometimes when you see something in God's word, it's kind of right in front of you, and it's like, man, I, I, just, I just never saw that. Uh, and it's just a powerful truth. Uh, and what he spoke about, because I was telling him what we were going to be looking at in, in uh, our message today. He, he, he said, I'm always reminded on the Ark of the Covenant that the mercy seat was above the law. That mercy was above the law. That in the Ark of the Covenant, there, there's the, the law. There's the Ten Commandments. There's the budding uh, staff of Aaron. And there is the jar of manna. And then the mercy seat sat over that. 
And it's not to uh, uh, remove the law. It's not to say, just as Jesus says, that the law is no longer binding. But what happens is in religion, we put the law over mercy. And then we start to puff our chest out, and we start to look down at individuals down our nose, and we fail to realize, listen, without the mercy of God, as lawbreakers, we have no hope either. It's only by the grace and the mercy of God and the sprinkling of his blood upon my life that I am saved. It's not because I am better at keeping the law than somebody else. Listen, we all fall short of the glory of God, but thank God mercies over the law. It's not about how much you can keep the law. It's about what Christ has done to cover the fact that you couldn't. Now, as a pastor, I'm required to give less credit for that for three times. After the third, I make it my own. That's just how it works. It's just how it works as a preacher. So less has gotten one, two more, and it's, it, it's mine. I get to take it. But it's so true. Think about Hosea 6.6. 6. For I desire mercy or steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Matthew 9, 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Matthew 12, 7, 8, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he's saying, listen, it's not that the law has no power. It's not that the law has no use. He's saying that if you elevate the law over mercy, and it's all about this religiosity, a sacrifice, then you fail to understand that what I have called you to is to realize the mercy of God with the violation of this because it points all of us to the fact we all need Jesus. The ground is level at the foot of the cross and no one needs Jesus any more than anybody else and nobody needs Jesus any less than anybody else. Thirdly and lastly, I always preach longer in this sermon, uh, this, this service. I don't know uh, why. So if you want to come to first service, you, you kind of get out on time. <laughs> now I'm going to switch it up. I'm going to preach that one real long just for y'all that switch on me. <laughs> we are to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. We're to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, we ought to just all give up right now then, huh? I can't do that. I'm doomed. In fact, if you don't, God's word says you will, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So is, is Christ giving us grace in one hand and then taking it away with the law on the other? Or is there something about exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees that reemphasizes the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I, I do. I think what Jesus came to do is not to give us a, li a list of rules to follow on a surface level where man looks, but he came to give us a new heart. It's not about more and more obedience. What he's not saying is this isn't a football game, the fighting Baptist against the Pharisees, right? It's not, it's not a football game where if they score 48, as long as we score 49, we win. What he's saying is that they were concerned with the outward appearance, and what I'm concerned with is the inner appearance, because you are not going to do things outwardly in such a way that it now penetrates into your heart and changes. No, 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 no. I change. I work from the inside out. I change hearts, and then therefore the new heart produces in you a fruit that now comes out of you, and it's not the other way. Religion is the other way around. If you do these things, it will eventually penetrate your heart and change you, and you'll be good enough. Christ says, none of that will never work. I'll give you a new heart, and then out of the soil of that new heart, you will produce fruit in, uh, in connection uh, with repentance. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus uh, addresses in Matthew 23, 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Listen, to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus is not calling for more righteous deeds by human effort, but more righteous hearts by divine grace. 
It's not about more and more obedience as if we're in this game with the Pharisees. He says, no, 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 there is no game. Righteousness at a heart level where God looks is what he wants for us as opposed to surface level where man looks. Because Christ is more concerned about the moral purity of your heart than the ritual purity of your hands. The focus is on developing divine character as opposed to keeping divine commands. It's not about a list of rules. It's about a relationship to where our heart has been radically transformed to now we live in connection with who our identity in Christ truly is. That's what Jeremiah 31, 33 prophesies, that in the new covenant, we would receive new, new hearts, that the Holy Spirit would regenerate, that we would have new hearts, that the heart of stone would be removed and we would receive a heart of flesh. And then in Ezekiel 36, 27, it says, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So oftentimes you have individuals that say, okay, because we're in dwell with the Holy Spirit, we're under grace, we don't need the law anymore. When in reality, what God's word is saying is that he's given us the Holy Spirit so that we can fulfill the law. And ultimately, what is the law? The law of Christ is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And apart from the Holy Spirit's regenerative work in your life and the sanctification process, you could do neither. He says, I'm going to start on the inside. then through conformity to my son Jesus I'm going to unleash you on the world to radically transform it because what I'm calling you to is not more and more obedience in quantity but deeper and deeper obedience in quality and may we be marked with that obedience so what is our job with the law? Love God and love people. And the greatest way that I can speak of the love of God in this moment right now is to implore you as an ambassador of Christ Jesus who has been entrusted with the message of reconciliation, that if you are in your sin, having never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you are separated from him and will remain in that condition for all of eternity unless you repent and believe and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That he died for your sin. And it's not about you adhering to the law. It's about you through faith recognizing that you could never keep the law. But by the mercy of God Almighty and the blood that was spilled on the cross, you now have freedom and salvation. Not to return back to being the God over your own life. That's what imprisoned you in the first place. But to be free, to be a son of God, to serve him and to serve others by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor.